Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week, we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone, and happy Thursday. We are live from the studios here in Washington, D.C., in the Eastern Market area. I am Chris Liu, and I am guest hosting for Bill this morning. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, uh, a frequent guest, sometimes guest host. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Bill's producers, Peter and Ray. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Peter, I, I want to tell you, so we had a little bit of an anniversary. I first guest hosted uh, a little over a year ago. This is now my seventh guest hosting appearance. Hey, all right. This Is I, is this like Saturday Night Live where I get like a... It's like a five-timers club. I get a jacket or something. That's a, that's a really good question. You know, we never really thought about that. What, what should the sort of tiers we, be? We should figure that because I assume seven puts me, like, still in rookie category. You're, you're pretty far up there. There are there are guest hosts who have done less than seven. So you're you're building a pretty solid uh, uh, showing for yourself. Well, I wasn't sure I'd get back after the first one. So oh, it, it's on nice now. to be back here, actually. This, so This is your seventh, and it won't be your last. It, it will, I appreciate that. We've got a lot of things to talk about. we got a fantastic show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Do you watch the NBA at all? I do. You keep up with the NBA? It was a big night last night I for know. LeBron James. I know. LeBron James passing his idol on the all-time scoring list. Rondo trying to get it to LeBron. Does LeBron down the middle to the rim, lays it up, in and a foul, and there it is. LeBron James with that basket and and one has moved past Michael Jordan into fourth place on the NBA's all-time scoring list, 32,294. That is the number of career points that he got to pass Michael Jordan. He went on to score a few more points last night. 32,294 career points put him one step ahead of arguably the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. And do you think he passes the first three? No. No. He, I don't. He has the advantage of really not having been as injured, and he started earlier. Really young. Right. Yeah. I had forgotten when I read rules. the story this morning the number of years that Jordan took off. 
Uh, he was injured. I think he was injured early in his career for a year. He had a couple years of kind of semi-retirement, then he had that baseball uh, foray. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and he and then he got to add a couple more onto his uh, right. career list when he came back. Right, that, that, that wonderful period of the Washington Wizards that that's... we all remember here fondly. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty remarkable achievement for LeBron James. This will. Uh, he said that this meant more to him than any of the championships that he's won. Uh, so then, of course, now we have to have that debate. Who's the greatest, Who's of, the all greatest time? of time? Michael Jordan. Or LeBron James. Well, I, I'm old school, so I still go with Jordan, but with we you. can have that argument. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, so yesterday was Ash Wednesday, and in California, in Southern California, it, it actually was raining. It doesn't rain a lot in California, right? <laughs> it's, that's a thing. I can see where the story is going. Well, so what they did is to keep people from having to get out in the rain and go and get the ashes on your forehead and then coming back out in the rain and having everything, you know, run everywhere, they actually had drive through Ash Wednesday ceremony. So you can stay in your car, you drive up, you get the blessing, they put the ashes on your forehead, then you drive away. You don't have to get out in the rain. You see, I thought you were going to say something different. I thought you were going to say they were worried about the ashes running after you got wet and that they sharpied you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now that like a permanent marker, <laughs> right? Actually, that would be unfortunate. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. Like a week after Ash Wednesday, you still have the thing. So, it, it, problem solved, I guess. Right? You don't have to get out of your car. You don't have to have the rain, have the ashes uh, run over your face. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and some sad news: Family Dollar announced yesterday they are closing about 400 stores around the country. They are not doing so well, uh, and so they are going to try and. Uh, Make a smaller company, have fewer stores, have uh, sort of concentrate on those stores and, and try to make them successful. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because there are other stores about to come and close uh, fairly soon. So, uh, But we will be back in a minute. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on a Thursday morning from our studios here in Washington, D.C., uh, about a block or two away from Capitol Hill, uh, from Congress. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Please follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44, a former Obama administration official, and very happy to be here in studio with Bill's producers, Peter and Ray. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Chris. How you know, you I, I was uh, watching. I, I do. I, I do. I want you to know. I do watch the show. Listen to the show on mornings when I'm not here. And I was watching Sabrina yesterday. And I, does does everyone come in and just say we have a great show? Does anyone <laughs> say we have kind of a substandard show? It, 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 you know, uh, one of these days someone's going to come in and say, you know, today's show is um, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Now, everyone everyone says uh, that we have a great show because you know why? Why? We always have, we a, always great have a great show. We always have a great show. Well, let me tell you about the lineup, and let's get to a couple things. Um, and, and one of the reasons I love guest hosting, and we were just talking, this is my seventh time guest hosting. Uh, wasn't quite sure after the first one whether anyone would let me back, uh, so it's good that I'm still here in the chair. It's because I get to pick my own guests. And we obviously get to cover news of the day, but it's a chance to highlight people I know who are really smart, really good conversationalists, and people who I think can also uh, shed some 
light, add some substance to the news of the day. And I say this as a person who is a frequent tweeter. Uh, you know, I've, I've gotten used to talking in 280 character sound bites, but one of the reasons why I love this show and I love radio so much is the chance to have a more extended conversation. So on the show today, we have Bridget Bowman. She is a senior political writer for Roll Call newspaper. Uh, and we're going to be talking. Uh, Bridget is really an expert on House and Senate races. And I know it just feels like we finished the midterms. We just sworn a new Congress, but we're getting right back into that. And there's some recent developments we can talk about. You know, uh, we, we talk a lot about 2020 and all the stuff that's coming up in 2020. And it's all about the presidential yep. race, which is a big deal, yeah. obviously. But, like, there are going to be a lot of there's House and lot. Senate races coming up. And so Bridget will be here in the uh, 7.30 half-hour chunk at 8 o'clock. We have Julie Zebrak. Uh, Julie is uh, a f- the former deputy chief of staff to the deputy attorney general, uh, James Cole, who served during the Obama administration. And I think it's probably fair to say that for a long period of time, no one quite had heard or understood what the deputy attorney general did. Obviously, Rod Rosenstein has put a lot of that into focus, and Rosenstein is stepping down, and so there's a new person coming on. And that's a particularly crucial role, uh, given where we are in the Mueller investigation. So Julie will be on uh, at the 8 o'clock half hour to talk about uh, not only what goes on in the Department of Justice, uh, this fight that's going on right now in terms of oversight between justice and the um, House investigative committees, uh, as well as some of Julie's organizing work right now, which is critically important as we look ahead to 2020. And then uh, in the 8.30 half hour, we have Hareen Contractor. Hareen uh, is a former colleague of mine at the Department of Labor. He is now the Director of Workforce Policy at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Uh, tomorrow, we get the monthly employment numbers. And when I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor, every month. Hareen would explain to me what the numbers mean. And so he'll be giving us a bit of a advanced preview, not what the numbers mean, not because they don't come out till 830 tomorrow, but what we should expect, as well as some of the important work that the Joint Center is doing to increase diversity on Capitol Hill, uh, which is somebody uh, who has spent a dozen years on Capitol Hill can tell you, uh, I can tell you it's not what it should be. So they've been doing some work on that. So that's what we have coming up ahead. Uh, but it's a busy day. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, we, we, we were sp- I was supposed to guest host tomorrow. Um, that got changed. And I was kind of looking forward to that because tomorrow's International Women's Day. Uh, so March 8th is International Women's Day. I would point out to all the folks who uh, will both celebrate this day uh, that this is a day that was interestingly started by the Socialist Party, uh, not only here in the United States, but in Russia. For those of people who are attacking socialists, uh, they, they again, we can have a whole conversation about socialists, uh, but they are one of the uh, reasons why we have an International Women's Day. And Socialism, uh, what can't it do? <laughs> what can't it do? And, and like everything else, uh, you know, we're actually going to celebrate it a day early because uh, Marvel Comics will release their first movie with a female lead. I think we all thought it was going to be Black Widow. I think it was supposed to be Black Widow. Uh, and and Captain Marvel opens. Uh, I think probably you can probably catch it right now. It opens tonight. I know. Yeah, it opens tonight. It opens tonight, uh, and it's gonna. It, it, and uh, I didn't realize you were a comic book guy. I found this out about you today. You're no, I, I'm actually. Guy. You know what? I, I'm a comic book guy, by the way. Well, I gotta tell you, no judgment. I, I am not a comic book. I I 
I have really gotten into this whole Avengers series and all the different ways that they've tied together not only Avenger movies, but each of the individual ones. And I got to tell you, like, when Infinity War ended, it, it had to me the feel of, like, uh, when the Empire Strikes Back yeah. ended. You're like, okay, now what happens? We, and, we had to wait for over a year, or almost a year. Yeah, to... a year to find out. And I think Captain Marvel will start to give us some clues about that. So I, I, I am a comic book guy. I, yeah. I was when I was a kid, and, and I still like comic books. I still read comic books. I have kids. I have uh, one teenager and one that's an, almost a teenager, and they love these comic book movies, which means I get to say, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I take my kids to see these movies. But really, I love right. them. I love them. And, and like, look, they're, they're, in terms of movie making, and you know, they're fine. Like, they're fine movies, right. but they're very enjoyable. Right. Uh, and – to do what they've done and to weave all that stuff together, this huge story that they have. But one thing, just to bring it back to what you were talking about, uh, Marvel Comics specifically has forever, as long as they've been around, uh, done a lot of good work to highlight um, a, a lot of social issues. Uh, they've addressed racism. They've addressed sexism. They have uh, a lot of different characters who are people of color that go all the way back to, like, the 60s. Right. The X-Men were created as a way to sort of highlight racism in this country because they were being discriminated against because they were mutants and there were a lot of parallels drawn between right. that you know uh, compared to the civil rights movement that was going on at the same time. So like there is a social aspect uh to comic books. It's not all just, you know, uh popcorn movies and things like that. No, and and it and it's great that Marvel is doing this, and I think you know um, it's overdue, and I think it actually comes on the tails of the phenomenal success of success of Wonder Woman. Uh, the DC folks beat Marvel to to having a uh, female lead, and I think a lot of people question whether that would be successful or not. And that was an amazing movie, Wonder Woman. And, and look at Black Panther. Look at Black Panther. It got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. <laughs> so uh, that will be fantastic. Um, look, we are a political show. And, uh, you know, as we talk about Captain Marvels, it's hard not to think about um, a, a genuine American hero who I think did something amazingly courageous yesterday. We, uh, you know, look, we're, we're a progressive show. Um, if this were campaign season, certainly we'd be talking about Martha McSally. Uh, campaign positions. She is the junior senator from Arizona. Uh, but yesterday in a hearing about um, how the military handles sexual assault, she uh, she came forward with her own revelation. Let's play that clip. The perpetrators abuse their position of power in profound ways. And in one case, I was preyed upon and then raped by a superior officer. Yeah. And so, look, that was really kind of one of those uh, moments during the hearing yesterday in the Senate when you could have uh, dropped a, a pin and sort of heard it. And, uh, you know, uh, kudos to her, uh, Senator Joni Ernst, who's talked about her own issues. And I think all the other women have come forward. And, and I and I it's look, this is appropriate to talk about every day of the year, especially on International Women's Day. Um, I would share for folks, um, Karen Tumulty, uh, who's a columnist at The Washington Post, uh, has a column out this morning, and it's t it's uh, titled, uh, Martha McSally's Me Too Statement Took Guts Maybe As Much As Her Actions in Uniform. And let me just read a passage of that. What McSally has done takes guts, possibly as much bravery as anything she did while in uniform, while her military record and the power she now holds as a senator— 
with her military record and the power she now holds as a senator, McSally knows that she almost certainly will be believed, but many others are not, even as the Me Too movement nears its the halfway mark of its second year. Nearly 7,000 sexual assaults were reported in the U.S. military during the past fiscal year, an increase of 10 percent, which suggests more service members are feeling bold enough to step forward when they are abused. But well over half of those who speak up claim they still face retaliation within their units when they are abused, all of which explains why even the bravest victims of sexual abuse must choose silence. There are a lot of Martha McSally's out there waiting to be heard. And I also want to give credit because I know uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been a big leader on this issue as well. And um, as has Jackie Spear, as is Jackie Spear as well. And so this is this is this is not a uh, this is not a partisan issue in any way. And these stories need to come out. And um, so it's important that the, they do that. The, the thing that's so depressing. Uh, well, there are a lot of things depressing about this story. But one of the things that's so depressing to me is we've been talking about some sort of uh, oversight yeah. for sexual assault in the military for 10 years, mm-hmm. 15 years, and we're still having the same conversations. Yeah. I mean, literally the same exact conversations. Yeah. I, I do want to play a clip that, uh, from, from Mitch McConnell, who has um, suggested that we need to do more on this. Whatever policy prescriptions uh, Senator McSally or Senator Ernst may come up with, we'd certainly be open to. And again, you know, we're not we're not here to be partisan about this issue. And so uh, if 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 Senator McConnell decides that this is the impetus to move forward, then that's great for him. But, Peter, as you said, this is an issue that's been talked about for a long period of time. And whether it's Congresswoman uh, Spear, whether it's Senator Gillibrand, they have been pushing for this issue. Uh, And while I hope Senator McSally's uh, revelation helps push this forward, it shouldn't have taken that to happen. I mean, this has been sitting around for a long time. There's a culture that is preventing women from coming forward that is disbelieving in them when they do that. And there's an inertia on Capitol Hill to addressing this issue in the military and frankly, within their own ranks as well, where it is a problem uh, in Congress, too. So uh, so International Women's Day, um, I have to highlight a couple other great women. I don't, Peter, that amazing photo of uh, Gail King doing the interview with R. Kelly, where he stands up and I mean almost looks like he's about to to attack her and she's just sitting there calmly so another wonderful uh, moment for a woman uh, in the last couple of days uh you know I I, I made a point to not watch that interview yeah. uh I, my mind's made up on R Kelly I don't need to, no I don't I don't, I don't need <laughs> to hear his side of the story necessarily uh but to think that um they would even have him in that forum just trying to defend himself and then he explodes in the way that he does. Uh, just from the photos I've seen, they're amazing. It's yeah. unlike anything I've ever seen on on news. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's so, crazy. It, yeah, it is crazy. So, um, again, uh, International Women's Day tomorrow um, and Captain Marvel and many, many Captain Marvels uh, among us. So um, we, there was also the very sad news over the last 24 hours about Alex Trebek the longtime, longtime host of Jeopardy, who announced yesterday uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. And really, uh, if you have not seen the statement that he put out, it's it's really very inspiring. We have the audio of it. Let's we should, go ahead. We, yeah. we should play that. Yeah. Just like 50,000 other people in the United States each year, this week I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Now, normally the prognosis for this is not very encouraging, but 
I'm going to fight this, and I'm going to keep working, and with the love and support of my family and friends, and with the help of your prayers also, I plan to beat the low survival rate statistics for this disease. Truth so, told, yeah. I have to, because under the terms of my contract, I have to host Jeopardy for three more years. <laughs> so help me, keep the faith, and we'll win. We'll get it done. Thank you. I love that last part about uh, Alex is going to, he, he wants to fulfill the re rest of his contract. Yeah, actually. man. So I was surprised. Do you know how old he is? How old? 78. No. Well, I, 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 boy, I hope I look good. When I, I hope I look that good as well. I, and somebody should, please fact check me. I swear I looked that up yesterday to see how old he is. But he looks uh, you, know, you know how old he is? He's ageless. He, he is. <laughs> you know what I mean? He looks the same today as he, he did when he I was looks, a kid, except he looks, he's lost his mustache. He looks exactly the same. So um, we're all uh, rooting for Alex Trebek. Uh, one other story I want to get to on a lighter note, uh, and it's in today's New York Times. Um Something iconic from my childhood, uh, and I think many people listening, um, I think is about to come to an end or is really kind of hanging on for dear life. Um, today, uh, in Australia, there's, well, we'll get to, there's a blockbuster uh, store, video store in Australia that today will stop renting videos that will close at the end of March. After that, there's only one more blockbuster store left in the world. It's in Bend, Oregon. Uh, and it's located, I think, in a, I don't know if it's a rural area, but apparently it's an area that doesn't get great internet service. So a lot of people, when they're coming in for rural areas to town uh, to, to buy groceries, you know, uh, run errands, they stop at the Blockbuster. They've got a seven-day rental period, which I think is much different than what I had when I was younger. I thought we had three days. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think when you're in Bend, Oregon, and you drive a long way, they cut you a break on the seven days. So that's the last uh, blockbuster. So that one is that, and then in the, the in the story, in the New York Times, they also talked about there's one Howard Johnson restaurant left in Lake George, New York, uh, and that was again. This is probably five years before me, but that was an iconic thing. The Howard Johnson, they had like fried clam strips. Uh, there's one of those left, and there's only apparently a couple of Tower Records left in Japan, and. Um, uh, I, it, Peter, I'm older than you. Do you remember? Do you remember Howard Johnson restaurants? Okay, no, I'd never been to a Hojo. Okay, I, I never got to experience that, uh, so I feel like I've paid a price for it. <laughs> Lake George, New York. So the the question I'm going to ask, and I, for people who are you know our, our listeners, something iconic from your childhood that uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. And we've got kind of a range of guests coming on this morning. I'll ask them that question. I think Harine is the youngest one. The, the, the expression that I use way too much is uh, I've got a very, uh, I've got a big Rolodex. And I do wonder whether people in their 20s have any idea what I'm talking about. You mean the watches, right? <laughs> the really nice watches. Yeah, yeah. That's a Rolodex. No, I mean, Peter, anything from your childhood that just doesn't exist, something iconic? You know, I I was a cassette tape. Oh yeah, kid, right? Like yeah. I had the cassette tape in my car, uh, or, or the deck in my car, and like cassette tapes. I found an old stash of cassette tapes when I was uh, yeah. cleaning out my house uh, recently, and my kids were just like, "What? What is that? Is this?" Yeah, and I was like, "It's like before CDs," and yeah. then they go, "What are CDs?" <laughs> so what? Okay, I had the same experience. What did you do with it? I mean, did you throw them? I away? threw them away. Yeah. 
Because it's like the Blockbuster thing. What does Blockbuster have? DVDs or VHS? Like, if it's a VHS tape, you can't find a VHS player anymore. It's really hard to even find a DVD player, much less a VHS player. No, so I'll admit this. So in the 70s, okay, we, I mean, God, my God, we had, uh, we, we went through the 8-track period of time for a while. That didn't go very I well. that. I, I was right. a little too young. Then that. my dad decided LaserDisc was going to be the thing. And if, for those of you that own a LaserDisc, it, it looks like, an album, so it's about that size, but it looks like sort of a DVD on an album size. Uh, and that lasted for a while. So we had laser discs okay. in school, okay. <laughs> and the there was like I think one laser disc player in the entire school, and like a security guard had to walk it through the school because it was it probably cost yeah thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. That's someone's salary right there. And, yeah, and so they had to like carefully bring it in, and then a teacher had to put on gloves and remove the giant laser disc thing and load it. And I just thought this is magic. No, I know. So there was that. Uh, we actually, uh, my dad, again, now we're just going down memory lane. There was a, a battle for a long time between the two formats of videotape. There was beta and VHS. That's right. We, we chose beta. My dad was convinced that beta was going to be the, the, the format of choice. Oh, I'm sorry. We chose badly. So. Well, I mean, look, there really is no right answer <laughs> with that right? because neither one of them survived very long. No, I know. And, you know, just going back to school, thinking about film strips and mimeograph machines and all kinds of other stuff. That... By the way, on our Twitter feed, at BP Show, yes. at BP Show, we put up that uh, question of, Please. of it's, it's a little nostalgic. Today. It is we nostalgic. Well, that's actually a good time to do a little plugging. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill on a Thursday morning. I uh, hope you will follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, subscribe on YouTube. Just go in there and uh, put Bill Press in. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Uh, our question for the day is something iconic from your childhood that just no longer exists anymore. And so, um, so we've got a lot of other things to talk about this morning. Um, one other story that kind of grabbed my attention, and we'll talk to Bridget about it uh, shortly. Uh, Aaron Schock. Remember Aaron Schock? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, Aaron Schock was the congressman from, um, uh, well, it's actually not Chicago. It's actually, uh, it's downstate Illinois, and I didn't know this because uh, he represented my, my mother-in-law's district. So it's sort of in the Springfield, uh, Illinois area. Um, Aaron Schock, uh, for reasons that I think are still unclear, decided to decorate his office um, in the mode of Downton Abbey. And and his the kind of the whole his whole budding career fell apart when he had a, um, a reporter come in and and follow him into his office and he sort of proudly showed off his bright red colored walls. It was a Downton Abbey themed office. It was a Downton Abbey. It was Downton Abbey themed office. And then I think like layers of an onion being peeled back, um, people started saying, "Hey, who decorated your office? How did you afford this stuff?" Uh, and it and it then revealed a whole series of uh, diversions of campaign funds for improper purposes and uh, trips on private jets and tickets to sporting events, and it became a whole issue. I mean, it was a total out-in-the-open grift. <laughs> it was out right? in the... I mean, that guy was just a total fink. You know, and it's and it's an amazing thing. And again, I, you know, like we can have an argument about over-prosecutions, and maybe I'll ask uh, Julie about it when she comes in. Um so anyway, um, yesterday, federal prosecutors in Chicago dropped all charges against Aaron Schock. 
if essentially he paid back all the money that he had taken. Um, I think it ends up being about a hundred thousand uh, dollars. He ha- his campaign has to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. Um, but this was a several year saga that that forced him to uh, step down from office, and uh, you know really I you know disgraced him in many ways. And you know leaving aside the hundred thousand he's paying back, I suspect he's run up well over that in legal fees, and so. Um, it is an interesting case about why federal prosecutors decided to drop that case uh, and whether somebody like Aaron Schock has a, a political future ahead of him. But um, that was kind of noteworthy. So maybe the moral uh, of the story is never let reporters see your office or consistently underdecorate. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think that's a good that's good advice. It's also sort of when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy, the, the quaint times when we used to, you know, care about open graft and corruption within the government and people could actually pay a price for it. And, and we'll have to find this, but um, Jesse Jackson Jr., who is another congressman from um, uh, Illinois, uh, also ran into issues about misusing funds. It's almost uh, like there's a problem with uh, right. Uh, Sorry, WCPT. <laughs> I know you're listening this morning. And uh, and then and, and paid it back and went to prison. And, 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 and I think Jesse Jackson Jr. put out a statement or tweeted about this yesterday about how, look, I paid my money back. I had to go to prison, but you know, I enjoyed serving with Aaron Schock. I wish him well. And obviously, the the governor, former governor of of Illinois, Rod Blagojevich, is still uh, in prison right now. So, um, yeah, there, there's. I say this as somebody who, for me, Il- Illinois is essentially sort of a second home since I worked for Barack Obama for so many years. My wife is from there, so I spent a lot of time there. But uh, they do probably not have the best record. Um, for public service. I, I know you have a, a long history in Illinois. Let me just say, please don't steal the office supplies when you're here. Okay? <laughs> well, Christmas. I will tell you, for those of you that can actually see uh, our office decor here in the studio, you can tell we're not skimming money for anything. I mean, no other, no other radio TV show is doing so much with so little. <laughs> uh, so this is Chris Liu in uh, studio guest hosting for Bill on Thursday morning. We've got a fantastic lineup. Uh, next up, Bridget Bowman, uh, a senior political writer for Roll Call will be in here. We'll be going. Uh, this is where those of you that are political junkies that want to just kind of dive into uh, races and you, 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 your favorite time of the year is sort of pulling out maps of, of, of House races, Senate races. Bridget knows all of this and will uh, be in studio to talk about more, the more of that. So she'll be here from 730 to 8. And um, we are excited to have her. So stick with us. We'll be back shortly. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on Thursday morning. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. I am thrilled to have, uh, and I'll say a colleague, and I should admit uh, that we have a professional affiliation. Uh, One of the many hats I wear uh, is as a senior advisor to a company called Fiscal Note, which last year purchased Roll Call, the iconic newspaper. So we are joined today by Bridget Bowman, who is a senior political writer at Roll Call. Bridget, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And you are on Twitter at Bridget BHC. I got to ask. Like, <laughs> okay, it's B-R-I-B-R-I-D-G-E-T-B-H-C. What's yeah. the H-C? It stands for Holy Cross, which is my Oh, there you go. Matter. There yeah. you go. Okay, all right. Yeah. There you go. So there was not... There's no no secret. It's not a no. gang symbol or something like that. <laughs> no, pretty clear. <laughs> so so Bridget is here uh, in studio. Bridget really specializes in House and Senate races. And I was just saying, it feels like we just went through this exhausting midterms. Mm-hmm. We uh, sworn a new Congress. And now we're back into this again. 
Yeah, it feels like we should have a longer break. I mean, it does feel like we just finished 2018 and then all of a sudden 2020 is starting, not just at the presidential level, but the House and Senate level, too. It's yeah, I thought we'd have a little more time to kind of relax a little bit, but it doesn't seem to be the case. So we were just talking about Aaron Schock and you had just said to me that, I mean, you think he or you hear that he may be thinking about running for office again? Yeah, there were different reports yesterday after the news that he would be cleared of charges. Um, he was asked if he would run for public office again and he wouldn't rule it out. So that was definitely notable. Um, I It did seem from reading the reports of different folks who had actually talked to him that he was just relieved that it was over yeah. and maybe didn't want to rule it out. But it would be fascinating to see if he can stage some kind of political comeback. Yeah, I look, I mean, <laughs> we were just talking about the whole genesis of the story, the the onion unwrapping that the uh, onion of uh, 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 Un, well, I guess, yeah, unwrapping uh, when when a reporter sort of saw what his office looked like and mm -hmm. people start asking questions. And so kudos to reporters who actually say, mm -hmm. hey, by the way, how did you get that wonderful paint color? Who decorated your <laughs> office for you? Um, so we're in kind of an interesting um, political landscape right now. I mean, we actually have uh, we don't even have to wait until 2020 for more races. We've got mm -hmm. a couple of special elections coming down the road. That's right. Uh, we have a couple special elections in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. Uh, two out of the three special elections coming up are in really Republican. Uh, so, but the one to watch is going to be. Wait, which one's the Pennsylvania one? Uh, Pennsylvania 12, Congressman Tom Marino. Oh, that's he right. He resigned right. like yeah. two weeks after the new Congress. Uh, so that's a really tr pro Trump district, right. very Republican. Um, and then there's two in North Carolina, one in North Carolina's third district, uh, former Congressman Walter Jones, who passed away. Right. And then in North Carolina's ninth district, which has just been a, a big mess of um, allegations of election fraud and absentee tampering with absentee ballots from a consultant for the Republican candidate uh, in November, kind of led to a whole new election. Just people saying these results are tainted, so we need to to start from scratch. Uh, so that's going to be a really interesting race to watch uh, because the Democrat came very, very close, about 900 right. votes to almost winning that race. Yeah, and let's just refresh for people what the voter fraud here is. And we shouldn't even say voter fraud. It's election fraud is really mm -hmm. what it is. I mean, you you had the Republican candidate hiring a consultant who basically specializes in getting people to sign up for absentee ballots, then going and harvesting the ballots mm -hmm. in some ways and either returning some or not returning others or filling them in. And uh, this was one of those classic examples where you could see irregularities just based on that one county and the percentage of people who returned their ballots and the percentage that voted Republican versus Democrat and how it was an outlier from not only other counties, but an outlier from the actual Election Day results. Right. And there was all these questions about whether this ballot harvesting, this kind of tampering affected the the result because the race was so close. And this is a district that President Trump won yeah. by 12 points in 2016, and the Democrat came very close to winning it. So it was so close that eventually the state election board is just like we need to to start over here. Yeah. So which is a good thing. Although I did it's kind of it's it seems like a weird schedule. Like they have the primary, but I think it's like a thirty percent threshold in the primary. Yeah. So you may have a runoff on the primary so and then the general. So we may I, I think that the generals and September? Yes. Uh, the primary, <laughs> I have my dates here because right, I know like, it's kind of crazy. Yet. I don't need yeah. to remember this. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the primary is May 14th. And then, if there is no runoff, then the general election would be September 10th. If there is a runoff, the runoff would be that date in September, and the general election would be in November. So, you're right. There is a 30% threshold. If no candidate gets 30%, goes to a runoff. It's looking 
very possible that that could happen on the Republican side. There are already a number of candidates in more even looking at it and the filing periods next week. So we'll have a better idea just of how crowded the field is on the Republican side. So you could go almost an entire year without that congressional district having a uh, member of Congress, which is crazy. And then I also had forgotten, because I think we forget these things, there are two Republican members of Congress who are under indictment right now. That's right. Uh, We've got Duncan Hunter and then the guy in Chris Collins Collins in New York. So Mm -hmm. um, those seats potentially open up as well. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, whenever, you know, last year as we thought about midterms, I always said to people, hey, it's not X number that you need. You actually need X number plus a couple because there's always seats in flux during the course of a term. Yeah, that's right. And we saw that in the last cycle, too. Some of these special elections get a lot of attention, a lot of money. I think we can definitely expect that in North Carolina's 9th District to that to be a test too, going into 2020 of some of the party's messages uh, for the general election. So as we look ahead to 2020, and it's never too early to look ahead to that, mm-hmm. um, I know that there's at least one, uh, in addition to Tom Marino, I think Rob Woodall in Georgia yes. is also retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, do you foresee kind of this wave of retirements? I mean, in some ways, that is actually what, um, those are the easiest seats to, to flip along the way. Right. And retirements were a big factor in 2018. There were so many Republican retirements, especially in competitive seats, that it gave Democrats a lot of opportunities because you don't have someone right. with an incumbent advantage. And I was actually talking to Republicans about this back in December when they obviously lost the majority. And there were Republicans I was talking to who were concerned that there was going to be an increase in retirements. They saw that after they lost the majority in 2006, the next year, many Republicans decided, I don't really like this whole being in the right. minority thing. Let's I'm going to just go home. Uh, when I talked to folks about this, some of the responses I got, well, who's left that would retire? Right. There are so many people who lost and who left. Uh, but there certainly are folks, especially of the more moderate wing of the party, people in the Tuesday group who have been you know, named as people to watch kind of on the retirement watch list. Um, but it, it still remains to be seen. It's still a little early, but that's certainly going to be something that we're watching. And I, I'm sure, too, that the NRCC chairman, Tom Emmer, is, is talking to members, trying to get them to hold on yeah. for a couple more years. It does have sort of a sense of the Rob Woodle one I thought was interesting because that was relatively early. Mm-hmm. And I was, he, he won his seat by 433 votes. Right. So, so close. Yeah. And so <laughs> but you have a sense that when the dam breaks like a lot of people start retiring at once when they sort of see, well, either the political climate's not favorable to us and we're not going to take back mm-hmm. the House. And, you know, you know, I, I will say this, having spent 10 of my 12 years on Capitol Hill in the minority, being in the minority is a pretty crummy place to mm-hmm. be. And there are a lot of Republicans yeah. who have just never had that experience. Right. I forget what the exact number is, but it's a very large percentage of that conference that has never served in the minority. So right. this is going to be a new experience for them. So it's going to be interesting over the next couple months as they kind of realize this is what it's like. Are they going to decide to kind of head for the exits? Uh, this is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill. I- I'm in studio right now with Bridget Bowman, uh, this, a senior political writer with uh, Roll Call. Please follow uh, Bridget on Twitter at Bridget BHC, which stands for Holy Cross, <laughs> if there are any Holy Cross alums out there. So um, we talked about the Republican side. There are some issues right now on the Democratic side. Uh, involving um, tensions, we'll say that, between the progressive wing, the more progressive wing, uh, and the moderates in this thing called motion to recommit. Explain what all of that means. Yeah, so this is a really wonky thing that is kind of 
part of the vocabulary now. Motion to recommit is a procedural move that the minority has. It's kind of a tool in their toolkit to affect legislation when it's on the floor. So they can offer essentially an amendment to the bill as a, to, the, to the bill that's on the floor as a motion to recommit. Um, it's often used as a political messaging tool to kind of put members in a tough spot. Um, the tricky thing, the kind of unique thing that's been happening recently is that Republicans have been offering motions to recommit and they won two of them, which is very unusual. When Republicans were in the majority, Democrats did not typically win. I their actually motions. think I saw that from from 2010 to 2018. <clears throat> Republicans never lost one of them. I don't know if yeah, that's right or not. Someone I can fact check that. But it's that an amazing right. level of discipline. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And the the kind of unique political is a reflection of the political situation that a lot of these freshman members of the Democratic caucus are in. There are, as a reminder, there are 31 Democrats in Trump districts. A lot of them are also first term members. And so they're getting to this floor process and these amendments are popping up and it's politically for them. It makes sense to side with some of these. Mm -hmm. And the tension right now in the caucus is do we try and kind of lock everyone in and have that discipline that Republicans have? Or do we allow some of these moderates, these folks in tough districts to kind of do what they need to do and side side with Republicans? And I was talking to some members yesterday about this, and there does seem to be a divide between some of the new members who are saying, like, I look at these as real votes. I'm going to take them as real votes. And then more veteran members who say, you're not going to lose an election on this. Like, we need to keep stay together as a party. So but these votes can and have been used in campaign ads, which is what the real issue is. Right. You know, and it is one of the you know, the argument that um, that Speaker Pelosi would make is, look, the reason that none of us knew what a motion to recommit was before this year is because if you if you 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 hold together as a party, the effectiveness of these things just kind of dissipates. It becomes this kind of symbolic vote where it's kind of the last gasp of the minority to throw something out there. It gets voted down and then you move on. Um, but I think what is challenging is, as you say, you've got these members, more moderate members in Trump districts. Um, and and I will give the Republicans credit. I mean, they have crafted these motions to recommit uh, in a very politically salient way. I think the one that came up last week on the background uh, check bill uh, was um, if an undocumented person, you know, illegally buys a, 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 a handgun um, that gets reported to ICE. Mm-hmm. I, you know, again, we, we can we can we can argue about the merits of uh, we can argue about, you know, illegal immigration. We can argue about guns. We can argue about ICE. But that's I you I, that seems like a pretty good political ad. Yeah. And I mean, you can even see I was talking to um Congressman Jerry Connolly from Virginia about this yesterday, and he was saying, I definitely understand where the freshmen are coming from on this, but Republicans are going to attack you in a campaign anyway. We might as well hang together and hold our party base together as well. But on the flip side, I was talking to Congressman Kurt Schrader, who's a blue dog, uh, who's from Oregon, a Democrat, and he was saying that leadership is kind of making too big of a deal of this. They need to let us do what we need to do. And that in really tough districts like some of these members are in, you want to make as few mistakes as possible and give Republicans as few as little fodder for campaign ads as possible. No, and I think it's right. And I think I think the challenge and I've and I've talked to members as well and and who are trying to navigate, um, you know, how many times you vote with leadership, how many times you vote against leadership. And they said, look, it doesn't matter if I vote against Nancy Pelosi 51 percent of the time. I'm still going to be active attacked as a Pelosi liberal. Right. And so there's certainly that school of thought. And I think when you talk to Capitol Hill veterans, particularly those that lost in the wave of 2010, they said, look, 
I could vote against cap and trade. I could vote against a- ACA. I still lost my race anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, the wave, whichever direction it goes, tends to overpower all of that. But I agree. I mean, y- you want to avoid these unforced errors, and it's part of leadership's job to protect members from mm-hmm. those votes. Yeah, that's right. It'll be interesting to see how this moves forward. There was a letter um, by a little more, maybe around 20 rep- uh, freshmen to leadership asking them to just address this in some way. So we're going to have to see if they change anything about the procedure. And this gets really wonky. And, right. um, but just to try and curtail some of this yeah. moving forward, because I would expect that Republicans are just going to keep bringing these yeah. up. So that's on the House side. Um, it is uh, on the Senate side. It's actually kind of fascinating because Democrats were on defense in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they are sort of on offense, but they have a problem, which is a lot of their better candidates uh, would all rather run for president of the United States. Right. It's this really interesting <laughs> dynamic. Where we're seeing this in a couple of places. Uh, one of the recent developments is John Hickenlooper, a former governor of Colorado, who has decided to run for president. Uh, it And talking to folks in Colorado, he had signaled to people that he doesn't want to be in the Senate. And it's kind of tough to convince governors to go to the yeah. Senate where you're one of 100 once you're used to running an entire state. Uh so I'm kind of skeptical as to whether he was really thinking about it in the first place. Uh, but I think Democrats would see him as a strong candidate, somebody who's won statewide in Colorado mm-hmm. before. But Colorado is cer- is certainly one of two really good pickup opportunities for Democrats. It's a state that Trump won. I'm sorry, Clinton won by right. five points. Uh, Democrats and unaffiliated voters actually outnumber registered Republicans in the state now. Democrats had a lot of success right. there in 2018. So. Democrats I've talked to there are optimistic they're going to get a good candidate to run against uh, Republican Senator Cory Gardner, and that um, even if Hickenlooper is running for president, that they're going to be able to find someone yeah. who's strong. Uh, there is an, in Texas as well, we see this problem. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who came very close to unseating Senator Ted Cruz last cycle, has indicated to reporters that he is not interested in running for Senate against Senator John Cornyn this cycle. And fueling even more speculation that he could run for president. He raised an enormous amount of money last cycle and has a lot of appeal to young people. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see, especially as the presidential campaign continues, do some of these candidates kind of fizzle out on the presidential level, take a second look at the Senate that we're just going to have to wait and see. You know, and then Mm -hmm. in in Texas, you got the dynamics with Julian Castro running for Texas. He would make a Senate candidate. His brother, Joaquin, is thinking about it as well. Right. Um, I now, by the way, I don't know if you know, know, have you seen Joaquin now has the beer? Yeah, so you can tell them apart. So now we can tell them apart because I've always gotten them off, actually. (laughs) I didn't realize that he had gotten the beer. Good for him. Yeah, no, I will tell you, in in 2012, I, um, after um, Julian gave the the keynote address at the convention, the, the Democratic convention in Charlotte, Literally, uh, both Castro brothers were walking around Charlotte. No, I mean, you just <laughs> congratulate them and figure you're either congratulating the speaker or his brother. Yeah. But now the, the beard really helps on walking. Yeah. It's w- still my favorite, maybe my favorite political story of all time when, I forget uh, who it was, but in San Antonio when they had the big river walk yes. parade, yes. Uh, the mayor wasn't able to be there. Who was Julian? Julian was the mayor. Julian was the mayor. Julian was the mayor. He couldn't be there, and then Joaquin showed up instead of him. (laughs) And then somebody, but somebody noticed. Look, I have friends that work for Julian at at HUD who say they they part their hair differently. I (laughs) don't see it. I'm really sorry. Actually, I was actually talking to some folks about his Joaquin's potential of running for Senate. 
uh, because he was leading the fight on the House to right, the rebuke the national emergency. emergency. And some one of their someone who was consulted for both of them pointed out that they have never run in the same election cycle <laughs> because Julian always ran in an odd year as right. mayor. And, oh, that's funny. And Joaquin was even year. So he was kind of skeptical that they would run in the same cycle because it would kind of divide, maybe right. potentially divide their donors and volunteers and things. Um yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he does make that jump for Senate and how, because that would be a new experience for both of them. What, what are the, there is a New York Times piece about this, about it's called White House Ambitions Cloud Democratic Hopes to Win the Senate. One of my favorite quotes from that was about um, Governor Bullock from Montana, mm -hmm. whose wife said, yeah, the only way I'm moving to Washington is if our new address is 1600 Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. I'm not moving there to go to the Senate. So that's, I know, another person that um, Senator Schumer is trying to entice as well. Stacey Abrams in Georgia is another person. Yes. Yep. She's another one. Um, and this is, as I think the New York Times piece pointed out as well, in some of these states like Montana, Georgia, maybe even North Carolina, Texas, the Democratic bench isn't that deep because right. these are traditionally Republican states. So if so, if you have the couple people who might be really good statewide candidates eyeing the presidency instead, that could be a, a problem for Democrats. Yeah. And they did snag Mark Kelly in Arizona. Yes, but, but he could face a primary against by, Congressman Ruben Gallego. Gallego. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And I saw Jeff Merkley, senator from Oregon, said he's not running. Yes. And I hadn't realized this. It's because... The legislature would not change the law so you could run for president and Senate. Oh, that's right. Which I, I think that. Cory Booker mm -hmm. can do in New Jersey is, yes. I think, what it is. I and think so, you're right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> this is all. So, so, uh, so clearly Democrats are on offense in 2020 compared to 2018. Uh, are Republicans on offense in, in 2020 in the Senate or are they playing defense right now? They're largely on defense just numbers-wise. There are a lot more Republicans defending their seats. I, Republicans do see some opportunities, especially Alabama is going to be oh, their yes, best obviously. opportunity yeah. by far. Uh, they do see I, – I, you could see them going on offense in like Virginia maybe, but certainly largely on defense except for Alabama. Uh, and we get to see Roy Moore again? I don't know. That's a really good question. <laughs> uh, I was digging into this a little bit when Congressman Bradley Byrne announced right. he was running for Senate. And there were Republicans in Alabama who I was talking to. The main question I had was, were people concerned that this could happen again, that there would be a crowded primary and an unelectable candidate would get through? And the sense was largely no, unless Roy Moore runs. Like, they, there's no other candidate who is so unpalatable to re Republicans in the state like Roy Moore, even before the allegations of sexual misconduct came out, there were Republicans who just couldn't stomach voting for him. Uh, so they were kind of, but of course, if Roy Moore runs, that maybe raises a lot of questions. Right. He is still fundraising for his legal defense fund. Uh, and he put out a fundraising email recently saying, you know, I'm going to, I'll let you know if I, if I run. So I, there are folks I talked to in Alabama who were really skeptical that he would run again. And there is definitely a sense of Republicans there that we do not want this to happen again. We This is our seat. We need to take it back. You have to imagine that the Republican Party will do everything in their power to right. keep Roy Moore <laughs> off of a ballot, right? right? But they did. I mean, they, they did, did that a before, lot though. last time, too, and it didn't really work <laughs> yeah. that well. And uh, right. there were some folks in Alabama I was talking to that, says, that say D.C. needs to stay out of this because involvement from Washington kind of hurt it elevated Roy Moore in a sense, which there's different opinions on, but it would be interesting to see if he does get in, how how D.C. folks here react and do they really get involved to try and stop him from becoming the nominee. Do you see a path for Doug Jones to get reelected? Uh, that's a good question. It's so 
Besides, of course, if Roy Moore is the Republican candidate. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. Um, I think it will be really, really tough because he, Republicans who I was talking to in the state, too, pointed out that he voted against Brett Kavanaugh for Supreme Court. He hasn't taken a ton of votes that have separated him from his party, but he has, if you watch kind of the press releases he puts out and what he's doing, he is focusing a lot on rural health care. Things are important to Alabamians, so... It's so difficult, though, with the partisan lean of the state and with Trump on the ballot. It's, right. Are there going to be Republicans who vote for Trump and for who vote for Doug Jones? I don't really see that as likely. And the special election turnout, special elections are so kind of funky when it comes to turnout. Uh, so I, I just think it'll be really, really, really tough for him. Well, this goes back to the conversation we were just having about um, mostly House members deciding whether they're going to run again or not. This concept of you have to kind of game out what do you think turnout will be like? Because traditionally in presidential years, you sort of see an uptick of Democrats voting. Mm-hmm. So you would sort of expect, well, if I'm, a, if I'm a House Republican, I barely squeaked by in 2018. It doesn't get better for me in 2020. The flip of it in this Trump era, Trump has the ability to turn his people out as well in a presidential and whether those two things sort of offset each other and whether an otherwise endangered House Republican thinks, you know, I might stand a better chance with Trump at the top of the ballot. Yeah, that's a good point, especially in these like there are some new Democrats who are in really Trump districts like Anthony Brindisi, a Democrat from upstate New York. Trump won his district by like 15 points in 2016. He's kind of the most Trumpy right. Democrat, um, the most Trumpy district for a Democrat. And so in 2020, does President Trump turn out his voters in a way that the Republican Congresswoman, former Republican Congresswoman yeah. Claudia Tenney couldn't? Right. I think that will be really interesting to watch in a lot of these more deep red districts that flipped in 2018. So you wrote a piece recently about uh, folks that lost in 2018 who might come back and run in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um Amy McGrath in Kentucky, yes. possibly against Mitch McConnell? Yes. Uh, it does seem like Senator Schumer maybe has met with her, talked with her. Uh, there are a handful of folks in this situation, people who lost House races in 2018 that are now looking to run for Senate, which is really unusual. We don't we typically do see people running for the House again right. or running for state office or something like that. We don't usually see people jumping after losing a smaller race. Uh, but the difference with McGrath and some of these other folks who are looking at a Senate run is they raised a lot of money in 2018 and proved that they can raise as much as a Senate candidate would need to to compete statewide. Yep. Do we, um, it does raise the question, if you couldn't win a district in Louisville, how do you win a a race statewide against the majority leader? On the other hand, you perpetually see uh, McConnell's approval ratings not very good, but Mm -hmm. that never seemed to be an issue with him getting reelected. That's right. And I think his team and Republicans in general are expecting his race to attract a lot of Democratic money. So having a candidate who can really compete and maybe make McConnell's folks take this. They are taking the race seriously, but is it going to force them to spend money and time and attention in Kentucky when he could be focused in other places? I think that will be definitely interesting to watch. Uh, We've been having this great conversation with Bridget Bowman, uh, senior political writer at Roll Call. I I have to ask Bridget this question, which I I started at the beginning. (laughs) Something iconic in your childhood (laughs) that just doesn't exist anymore or or people don't really use that much anymore? Yeah, that's such a good question. I was trying to think. I Probably VCRs. I like remember watching a lot of VCRs VCRs. and taping shows and then watching it. I and I 
don't own. Although a VCR I have to anymore. ask, you you are using the traditional reporter pad that yeah. people have been using for yeah. like you know ever, and it like comfortably fits in your hand. Yeah, and you're still scribbling away at that. I do because I'm, and I use a recorder and everything as well. And people often just use their phones, right. but I'm kind of nervous. What if what have right, the recording? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what if it breaks or something? So I usually take notes. Too. Yeah, I remember even taking shorthand when I was in, in high school. I don't know who the heck knows that anymore. Actually, <laughs> that would be so handy. Though. That would be if, if anybody could b- uh, b- bother reading any of this. Uh, well, look, we've been having a great conversation today uh, with Bridget Bowman, senior political writer at Roll Call. Please follow Bridget at Bridget BHC. Uh, Follow her excellent reporting on House and Senate races. Bridget, thank you for coming in. Uh, This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill, and we will be back uh, in a couple of minutes. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning and happy Thursday. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill. Uh, We are live in our studios um, just off of Capitol Hill. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow the show at BP Show. And you can watch us on YouTube on just search Bill Press. And so... We've had a great conversation about house races. We're going to dive uh, in on a couple of other topics with some good friends of mine. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Let's start with some sad news because we're going to go to close to Youngstown, Ohio yesterday. A huge General Motors assembly plant yesterday closed down after 50 years producing cars and other vehicles. Uh, This will be uh, an elimination of about 1,700 hourly positions. Yesterday, they rolled out the Chevy Cruze off of the line, and that was the very last one that would be made at that plant. It is closing down. It's been there since 2000. The the Cruze, I should say, has been made uh, in that plant since 2011, and they say that it has become a victim of consumer tastes car buyers in an era of inexpensive uh, gasoline so people are buying bigger cars yeah i mean there's something worried about you know, uh, look th- the there's, there's something very crummy about all of this i mean um and we can well i don't know if we'll have it but you know trump basically went to that area in 2016 and campaigned and said look i'm bringing back all the cars yep. in fact he said don't sell your houses yeah. i'm bringing back the jobs and this plant closed it actually closed two days early uh, Sherrod, Senator Sherrod Brown's been very vocal about this. I mean, it is 
it's unfortunate. Um, and look, I mean, you know, uh, we can have a broader conversation about globalization and the auto industry, but sure. um, don't make promises like don't sell your house. That's not good. Yeah, it's a very sad story. Yeah. Uh, we talked, I guess it was about a year ago, a little over a year, that Mario Batali got in all this trouble because he was part of the Me Too movement. He was uh, sexually harassing employees and certainly allowed that type of behavior to happen in his restaurants. Well, yesterday it became official. He has no more restaurants. He sold his stake in a chain of restaurants. He had about 16 different restaurants uh, that he had his hands in, right? Uh, a lot of them in New York, uh, two in Asia, three in Las Vegas have already closed, but the, now he's just taking his name off of all of them altogether. He no longer is a restaurant owner. Yeah. He's no longer a celebrity chef. He's not on TV anymore. <laughs> uh, this is what happens. No, and this and is what should happen. And, and exactly what should happen. And we're going to say it many times. It's International Women's Day uh, tomorrow, March 8th, but it really should be International Women's Day every single day. And, and, and great thing for the Me Too movement. While we're talking about food, uh, this one is slightly better, but only slightly. We go to Philadelphia where Joe's Steak and Soda Shop They've been selling cheesesteaks since 1949, so they're coming up on their 70th, 70th anniversary, and they are serving a special sandwich. It's a cheesesteak that instead of being served on a hoagie, they're serving it on two slices of pound cake. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, it's... Uh... That sounds horrifying. You know, it's kind of like, okay, and I'll admit this, I'm a big McDonald's fan. I go to McDonald's a lot. It's when they brought up the McGriddle. I thought this was like the oddest thing, and this would never last. It actually lasted. So who's who knows? Pound cake and who steak. Knows? Who knows? Who I mean, knows? yesterday you're talking about mayo being mixed in with other things. So. Yeah. There's the mayo chup. There's the mayo barbecue sauce. <laughs> I'll say this about cheesesteaks. Philadelphia is gonna, not going to like this. Cheesesteaks, most overrated sandwich that there is. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Cheesesteaks are not good. There's a reason you can only get, quote-unquote, good cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. Nobody else wants to serve them. They're not good. Uh-oh. Yeah, anyway, if you're going to have... But that, that being said, if you are going um, to That have was a, Peter, so tweet at Peter. Yeah, Do not yeah. tweet Find at Find me Chris on Twitter. Lee. That's fine. I can, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll have that argument. Uh, but again, uh, cheesesteaks on pound cake, no. That's a no for me, dog. This is Chris Lou. We'll be back in a moment. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on Thursday morning. Uh, we are live in studio here in Washington, D.C. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Uh, we've had a poll question out this morning. Uh, something iconic from your childhood that no longer exists anymore or is very hard to find. Uh, it was all timed off of uh, the today's New York Times story that uh, by the end of the month, there will be one blockbuster store left uh, Ever, anywhere. Uh, we're down to one Howard Johnson restaurant and a couple of Tower Records. So uh, our next guest who we're going to pose this question to is uh, Julie Zebrack. Julie spent 19 years as an attorney in the federal government uh, at the Department of Justice and the Department of Treasury. During her 18 years at the Justice Department, um, she served in many roles, but uh, most notably as the uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Jim Cole, who I had the pleasure of working with. So, Julie, welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. And you can follow Julie at Yes Moms Ken, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Um, so, Julie, uh, 
I would say until Rod Rosenstein, and I mean this actually to no offense, actually I should say, until Sally Yates, (laughs) no one quite knew uh, what the deputy attorney general did and why this matters. Uh, And then uh, Sally Yates, who you and I both know, I don't know if she's fired or resigned, we can have that argument, but then she stepped down, um, Sally became this kind of cause celeb, and then uh, Rod Rosenstein comes in, and boy, now everyone knows who the deputy attorney general is. you having worked as the deputy chief of staff to this important position, what is this position and why is it so important? Right. So, um, you know, Chris, you obviously were deputy secretary, right? Yeah, I didn't have as much power as the deputy attorney general. All right. Well, um, the deputy has the um, privileged role of really running the Department of Justice, um, being almost like the COO of the Department of Justice. And what that means... um, sort of day-to-day is that everything falls under the deputy to be in charge of um, working on budget issues, working on operations, IT, um, not doing the IT himself, of course, but um, making sure that the department is where it needs to be and certainly supervising all of the litigating and law enforcement components of the department. So um, the deputy supervises the FBI director, the head of the DEA, um, the head of the criminal division, the head of the civil rights division, all of those roles, um, those folks are reporting to the deputy attorney general, and therefore he is responsible for things that are coming out out of those components. That's what we call them at DOJ as components. Um, He's also, um, or she, when it was Sally Yates or Jamie Gorelick, he is also responsible for really making sure, and he, he has a large staff to do this, which is what I was part of, making sure that every single thing that reaches up to the um, attorney general's office and then over to the White House has been really vetted in terms of um, policy issues, cases that are going to be in the news, and making sure that all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted, and making sure really to provide cover for the Attorney General and for the White House in terms of legal issues. And um, he's also, um, or she, is is responsible for a lot of day-to-day work with the White House um, and has a really significant role in um, dealing with the national security issues that are happening across the country um, and making sure that the Justice Department is giving solid advice to the White House on those. So you wrote a piece in Politico uh, February 21st saying, Rod Rosenstein's replacement isn't ready for the job. So so talk about the person that they're going to put in that job and, and why that person uh, isn't doesn't meet the traditional qualifications, we'll say that. Right. So, um, so the White House has nominated Jeffrey Rosen, and he is by all, you know, Reading him on paper, looking at his CV, he's clearly an accomplished lawyer. There's, you know, I'm, I have no, I don't want to make any suggestion that he's not a smart guy, capable. Um, let's put it this way: he's no Matt Whitaker, um, and I think that, he, <laughs> <laughs> I think that in many ways, um, he has a lot of great things to offer the Department of Justice. And I say that as somebody who spent 18 years there and loves it. But the main two qualifications that he lacks that are essential for this particularly important job as deputy attorney general are having criminal experience and criminal prosecution experience, criminal investigation experience, and then having national security experience in the federal sector. And And we should say he serves right now as the deputy Deputy secretary Secretary of transportation. Transportation. Right. And he had been the general counsel 
of the Department Transportation. of Transportation and of OMB right. um, during the George so Bush So he's got admits. a lot of experience. Right. So he's very experienced. He's a litigator at Kirkland and Ellis, a top you know firm in the country. So he has great experience, but it's just not the right experience. I mean, one of the um, things that I was talking to a friend and I was explaining, it's almost as if you have a doctor who is amazing at, you know, he's an orthopedist and he's an amazing orthopedist, but now you need brain surgery <laughs> and you're going to ask him to operate on your brain. It doesn't necessarily translate. Can that surgeon learn? Sure, that surgeon can learn. But do you want that? No. So part of why this is so important, um, just to give you some context, is, for example, when I was working for Jim Cole um, in 2013, Right when I came on board, um, the Boston Marathon bombing occurred, which is, you know, a really significant event for our country. The first time, I think, since 9-11 that we had had a really significant event um, and very jarring experience for everybody and a huge national security issue. Three months after that, we had the Edward Snowden leaks. Both of those issues um, have criminal implications. They have national security implications. Um, they took over the schedule of the deputy attorney general in terms of what what he is focusing on day to day, you know, inside the Department of Justice and working with law enforcement, as well as running over back and forth to the White House and working with the other agencies to make sure um, that we were identifying who the defendants were and making sure that we were getting a handle on the leak, all these issues that are extremely complicated and reverberate throughout the world. Um, for somebody to not have their own foundation to pull from on those types of issues, to not be able to say, well, I've seen this before, I've worked on these types of issues before, and this is these are the, the red flags we need to be looking for, that really puts Jeff Rosen in a very vulnerable position. It makes him vulnerable because he's then dependent on all of his advisors who may or may not be top-notch. Um, certainly, you know, the ones, the career folks I trust, but I don't know who else is serving mm-hmm. him in those roles um, in terms of making sure that their intentions are good and making sure that they're, you know, providing him advice that he can then contextualize and bring forth over to the White House and making key decisions. But he's also vulnerable in that um, to the extent that the White House is pushing back on issues that that deal with criminal law and national security um, or trying to influence policies at the Department of Justice. He he doesn't have, again, this sort of um, breadth of experience to pull from to be able to say, no, at the department, that's not how we do it. And so, again, he becomes very reliant on his advisors, and that's not a great place to be um, for such significant national and international issues. We're having this conversation with Julie Zebrak. Julie uh, spent 18 of her 19 years uh, at the Department of Justice, including serving as the deputy chief of staff to the deputy attorney general, one of the deputy attorney generals during the Obama administration. Uh, Julie just wrote a piece a couple weeks ago about the new deputy attorney general. I feel like people in the White House must have been listening to you because, as you probably saw, they've now announced their intention to nominate Jesse (laughs) Liu as the associate attorney general. Right. Um, I don't know. I should say Jesse's last name is spelled L-I-U. It is not. We're not related. Although I will say (laughs) as we go to the same Orange Theory studio. Oh. Uh, yeah, so that's my only connection. <laughs> <laughs> I can see, I can see Peter back there. Who's chocolate. more fit? Uh, oh, Jesse is much more. Uh, Jesse and my wife practice law together for a little bit. So. Oh, all right, good. 
Um, <laughs> I'll see you at one of these 5 a.m. Orange Theory. I, 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 yes, there's one. We should all say for the Orange Theory fans out there, uh, there is a studio across the street from um, this studio. And I'm not at that one at 5 a.m. I am periodically at 5 a.m. Oh. Um, anyway, <laughs> but we digress. Uh, right. But Jesse is the current U.S. US attorney, attorney in D.C. Right. Who does have experience as a prosecutor. Right. Do you think that was intentional? So it's interesting that you say that because yes, uh, was it yesterday or the day before when when right. her um, when the intent to nominate her was announced, and I was like, she would be the she should be the DAG. Um, you know, maybe Jesse Lou doesn't want that job. Yeah. Maybe they are trying to make sure that whoever um, is following, you know, behind is is uh, Jeffrey Rosen has that experience. I will tell you though, and this is what's tricky. We talked about what the deputy attorney general supervises in terms of he's in charge of um, the law enforcement agencies. They report up to him. They don't report up to the associate attorney general, which is the role that Jesse's right. taking. So while she will have, um, I guess, purview over, let's say, if the environmental division brings right. a criminal case, that can come across her desk. But in terms of the law enforcement national security aspects of the department, they don't report to her um, Jeff Rosen may seek her counsel yeah. um, in addition to that of his staff, but um, they don't, you know, she has no real authority over them in terms of saying we're not going to do this or this is how, you know, we need to do it. I'm, ho- you know, I'm hopeful that she will be a partner to him, um, to Jeff Rosen, if he, you know, moves into that slot. But I also, um, I also was a bit disappointed to see that she wasn't the nominee. Yeah, I, although I will tell you this one thing, and again, I don't, I don't know the woman. Um, by all accounts, she's been a fine U.S. attorney. Right. Buried in the stories about her nomination was that curious thing that when she, before she was nominated for the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, Trump asked to meet with her. Right. And that, Jeff Berman. F. Jeremy Berman. Who was never confirmed. Right. This yeah. is unusual, I think, for the press. And we'll ask other folks who... Uh, 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 for the president to meet with U.S. attorney candidates in places that he potentially faces criminal liability, right, is we'll say it's unusual. Well, it's it's not standard practice. I think I I agree with you that it's not standard practice. Um, that being said, um, we've seen that, for example, Jeff Berman, who is the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New right. York, has certainly not yeah, no, been. He's not um, shied away from. I was going to say he was interviewed by Trump, and he certainly is, you know, doing what he needs to do. And so um, I, I've heard nothing to suggest that yeah. Jesse Lou didn't do the same, and that she wouldn't do the same. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, I will say, and I don't know how it is at other agencies, certainly, but I will say that. For folks who have spent um, quite a bit of time at the Department of Justice, such as Jesse Liu, um, and frankly, I would say Bill Barr as well, um, there really is um, a commitment to making sure that justice is is found, is sought out. That um, And while you and I may disagree with what they view as justice and things may that you and I may view as injustices are not injustices to them, given the partisan nature of the two parties. Um, I do think at the end of the day that um, protecting the institution will be important yeah. for both Jesse Liu and, um, and I've said publicly, I think so for Bill Barr. That, and, you know, as far as Jeffrey Rosen goes, hopefully he will get that feeling once he walks through those doors. Um, but right now he just doesn't have the same. He didn't grow up there. And yeah. there's a really big difference, I think, for people who come in as politicals in and out versus really having spent time. 
And, and that's an important point as well. I, I would note, I tweeted out a couple uh, the other day, um, I think the number of civil rights investigations is down 60% right. from this administration right. uh, compared to the Obama administration. And that's right. troubling. And that's right. the impact you see of, I would say, radical political ideology uh, taking hold at a, at a department that should not necessarily be ideological. You're right. I will say, though, we we certainly saw quite a dip during the um, George W. Bush administration exactly. as well. And so, frankly, um, you know, in this modern era, we're sort of braced for it. That's why it becomes all the more important to have fantastic leadership yeah. um, at the helm when we do um, have, you know, a Democratic administration. And folks like Tom Perez and Vanita Gupta certainly came in, did amazing jobs to sort of catch us up from the Bush administration. And frankly, that's what we're going to have to do um, once we take the White House again is yeah. make sure that we're putting in people who can really make up for that lost time. Yeah. You know, um, you, you mentioned Bill Barr, and I think it's worth talking about him. Um, served as attorney general during the Bush 41 administration, um, mm -hmm. is now back as attorney general. Uh, he certainly got his work cut out for him. I mean, right. this is um, an administration led by a president who is criticizing deep state and I think has taken particular aim at the Justice Department, FBI, intel agencies. Right. As somebody, uh, you've spent, you know, your career uh, at the Department of Justice. What do those, do you have a sense of what those attacks from the president do to the morale of employees there and the work that Barr has ahead of him to restore that morale? Um, I do have a sense. I mean, certainly... Um, I happen to be at the Department of Justice through several administrations, um, and including during the U.S. attorney scandal and Monica Goodling years, yes. Alberto Gonzalez. And so I saw firsthand how having the department um, politicized and, frankly, having the department um, look bad um, to the public was really a deflating, um, you know, impact on morale and, and really didn't feel right, knowing the people who work there are really there to do the right thing. Um, so I can tell you that my guess is having big, is having Bill Barr there is reassuring to folks as opposed to having Matt Whitaker or even Jeff Sessions. Mm -hmm. He does know the building. He does know the scope of the work. Um, everything is so unsettling in this administration and in Washington right now that having somebody who at least has a handle on what the department does and has the, uh, you know, sort of background to be able to be on solid ground with the White House, I think is probably yeah. reassuring. But look, it's going to it's going to take quite a long time yeah. to um, build up morale. I mean, certainly everybody I know who worked there for years and years and years like myself it's it's very easy to find a reason to leave right now yeah. um, as opposed to staying on so yeah. if you you know if um, even if some of the work for example the criminal work and the national security work doesn't often because you know every administration well I say that every administration's against crime but we right. can certainly take issue with that with the Trump administration but anyways they want to get the bad guys um, that doesn't change all too much and so folks um, really do try to keep their heads down and keep working. But if they're, if you know, if they're at all inclined to say, "Wow, well, I've been here ten years, I've been here fifteen years," they may not want to stay at this point. Yeah, um, we are here with Julie Zebrak, um, longtime 
um, attorney at the Justice Department. Uh, you can follow Julian at Yes Moms Ken. I, I want to talk about another topic that you've been outspoken on lately, which is security clearances. Yeah. Um, we, um, uh, the White House, um, <laughs> again, speaking of things that are not standard practice, um, uh, we know now from press accounts that both um, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump uh, were given clearances despite. Uh, concerns, reservations, whatever it is from career officials. Um, and it was done because the president uh, asked them, asked, demanded them. Um, we have a clip um, of, uh, uh, we have Sarah, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders talking about security clearances. Can we get that up? not going to comment on uh, security clearances. That's the policy of the White House, and that continues to be the policy of the White House. Yeah, let's okay. So let's dissect all this. So we the other clip we don't have is John Kelly, the former chief of staff, was at Duke yesterday. He was actually asked specifically, "Did you write memos uh, recommending against Kushner getting?" A, and he said, "I'm not, not going to talk. About I'm not going to talk about that." Which means yes. Um, <laughs> you've got Sarah Sanders saying, "We're not going to comment on that." Believe. I mean, let, let's 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 stipulate that if there were not these memos or if the reservations had not been made. Right. They would absolutely be like saying absolutely not true. So right. so these non denials really are 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 basically um, admissions. I think right confirming. You've, yeah, you <laughs> and you've um, you've had security clearances. I've had security clearances. Right. Thousands of us who served at senior positions had right. access to information. Right. Had it. It's a standard practice. Right. It look security clearances are not a party favor that you hand out. No. Um. It, you earn them. They they are. They cost a lot of time. They cost a lot of money for the agencies who are sending out investigators to look into you. And they are there to protect our national security. I mean, look, we those of us who have gone through the process know you you come in, you often get what's called a waiver. So you can start your job right. with limited access to information um, with the idea that once your background check is run, which often takes like a year, a year and a half in some instances, then you're cleared to sort of see everything. You wait for that. You want to have that. It is a. It's something you end up putting on your resume that right. you've earned that clearance. It's really not a gift. And in this circumstance, to see not only um, is is it handed out to you know the family members of the president, it's done so in in such a way to completely undermine the intel community, the FBI, and what they're advising. It undermines the career folks who literally day in, day out, look at all the information that comes before them for every candidate seeking security clearance. And they have the ability to evaluate, this is an issue, this isn't an issue. And it's basically saying, I don't care what you think. I don't care what the risks are. I want them to have this. This is, of course, incredibly ironic given her emails and the, the uh, you know, the constant barrage of Hillary's emails being a national yeah. security risk, that we're now in a situation where it doesn't matter what foreign contacts Jared has. It doesn't matter what business interests Ivanka has. Um, it doesn't matter if they're susceptible to being, you know, taken advantage of by a foreign nation or for susceptible to bribery or extortion or whatever in terms of their role of being on you know in this access the whole idea when you get a security clearance is that you are a secure person that the government has deemed you're not susceptible to a foreign influence yeah. or having that kind of impact on you so i think um it's 
very ironic. So uh, I just did an interview for a former colleague who's trying to get their security clearance. And I'm sure you've done this as well. Um, you have an investigator who's asking you these standard yet sort of dry, slightly comical questions, and they're right. trying to do it. And you're trying to answer them seriously because this is serious. But the questions are like, does this pro person have a problem with drinking? Does this problem have a person have a problem right. with gambling? And the interview always ends with these two questions. Is this person susceptible to blackmail? Do you have any reason to question this person's loyalty to the United States? Right. Like I could literally walk down the street and I could basically right. say, I don't question any of these people's loyalty. I have no reason to question any of these people's right. loyalty to the United States. And the fact that two senior advisors to the president, right. there may have been doubts about their loyalty or their susceptibility to blackmail, such that it required the president of the United States to override that right. is amazing. It is amazing. You think about, you know, I've talked about how those questions at the end, when you sit there and you go through yes. a half hour interview. We kind of chuckle at the end. We do <laughs> chuckle. It's a throwaway question. Right. Of course I don't question the loyalty <laughs> of my college roommate or whatever it is. Um, of course not. No, there is nothing that makes me think this person is susceptible to blackmail. Um, that really is the easy. I mean, those are yes. the easiest questions. The hard ones are when they ask you, you know, have you seen them, you know, doing drugs or right. and you're like have i have i, I yeah i don't not. know so um the those are really the easy questions and so yes the fact that the two big ones the ones they care about the most right are the ones that we can't get a real honest answer on yeah. for ivanka and jared and that is frankly um should cause every american even the ones who you know have have no reason to ever have those questions posed to them that could should cause them pause because they're obviously in a position um, to be getting access to information that that we can't trust what they're doing with it yeah. and how they'll use it. And what's amazing is the reporting on this is that there are apparently at least 30 Trump officials for whom there were concerns raised about their fitness for a clearance right. and that were overridden by a political person that was put in that office. Right. So um, this is certainly an issue that uh, Elijah Cummings, House Oversight, and others will be looking into as right. well. Thank goodness. And it set, look, it sets a dangerous precedent. All this undoing of norms that um, that the Trump administration has taken upon themselves to to um, promote and to make sure that you know they're sending a message to their base that they're not you know Washington as usual. These things can be turned yeah. around on them. And I'm not saying that the Democrats would go to national security risks as a as a playbook move, but I also think it's important to recognize that um, once it's done, it can't go. No, it can't go back, yeah. and and it really um, it really sets a dangerous precedent for yeah. all future administrations. So we've been having this great conversation with Julie Zebrak. Uh, Julie, we um, we've been asking the guests uh, because there's one blockbuster left in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, anything from your childhood, so something <laughs> iconic that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I was all right. So I can I. Two answers? Yes, but we have a couple, like a minute. So. All right, two answers. One is I heard Bridget talk about a VCR. Yes. And that made me think about the um, tape recorders where you make mixtapes. Oh, on. yes. So I was like the queen of making mixtapes oh, for my friends. friends. So that, but I feel like I'm cheating because she talked about VCR. The other thing I was thinking of is those neck gear, headgear things you had for your orthodontistry oh, after braces. I you know to, those? Yeah, Did you have one yeah. of those? It was so ugly, and I literally would wear it proudly. I don't know what I was thinking. If um, if you have not seen the movie Sixteen Candles, go back and watch Sixteen yes. Candles. There's a great movie, a movie where a, a scene where they're 
all wearing their headgear. Right. So, um, well, look, this is Chris Luke guest hosting for Bill Press. We've had a great conversation with Julie Zebrak. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Yes Moms Ken. We didn't even have a chance to talk about that, but That's next right. time we will. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on Thursday morning from our studios here in Washington, D.C. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow the show at BP Show. And you can always watch us either live or uh, after the fact on YouTube. Just search Bill Press. And we've been asking uh, our listeners, we've been asking our guests about iconic things that no longer exist anymore at all. Kind of mm-hmm. comes out of the fact that there's one blockbuster left in the country, which is pretty sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are uh, now in studio with Harin Contractor. Uh, Harin is the director uh, of workforce policy at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. You can follow Harin at Harin Contractor. I'm assuming there's not more than one <laughs> no. Harin Contractor. And then you can follow the Joint Center at Joint Center. Harin, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Uh, so Harine is a former colleague of mine from the Department of Labor. And as we were saying at the outset of the show, uh, every month when the employment numbers come out, uh, Harine is one of those really smart people ex- <laughs> who explain to us what these numbers mean. And uh, we're not doing this. Had we been doing this tomorrow <laughs> uh, on, on the first Friday, actually, it's the second Friday of this month, yeah. uh, uh the employment numbers come out at 8.30. We would have been doing this in real time. So yeah. we're going to have to do this sometime on a Friday at 8.30. And like we sit there and we analyze the numbers in real time. So uh, last month, I think the numbers sort of surprised us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the job growth for the month of January was 304,000. This was during or reflected the shutdown. And I think people were surprised that the numbers didn't really reflect that. What's the sense of what happens this month? And um, and whether the job market is sort of starting to cool off a little bit. Well, so, Chris, thanks for having me on. You know, the economy has been slow and steady as it is. If you average it out, we've been at the same pace we've been at since pretty much 2014, you know. And we know there's a margin error with these things, but relatively, we had a great number last month. You know, again, there's uh, some fluctuation to this. There might have been some seasonality. What we have been seeing is that these seasonal-type workers, especially like these couriers because of Amazon Prime, have been ha- like hiring on earlier and then staying on later. So that might have been the effect because the numbers from BLS hasn't really caught up to what's actually going on on the ground. But as we can tell, the economy is slow and steady. It's, it's not like gangbusters. You know, the GDP number came out. It was 2.9% for the year. Uh, you know, the president certainly hoped it was going to be higher. Uh, again, we haven't really seen anything really take off. We really, if we were going to see something really take off, we'd see in wage numbers. We have seen it take up a little bit, but at this point, in a record number of job growth creation, uh, we should see wage growth growing a little bit higher, especially for um, low wage or you know middle class workers. And we're not seeing that. Well, especially since uh, the president, Republicans promised that we would all get a. $4,000 pay raise as a result of the tax cut. Um, I defy anyone who's not uh, already mm-hmm. earning, uh, you know, in excess of seven figures that they got a $4,000 pay raise. Uh, I also think, uh, and what, but what's interesting is that notwithstanding that promise and the tightening job market, wages have not really gone up. They've not really gone up. And even talking about this tightening job market, there's so many workers that are still left behind, right? So when we talk about the overall numbers, about 4%, you know, it's typically getting around what economists feel that's full employment. Yeah. But it's not to where we would like full employment to be. So in the 90s, 
you really saw the number below, you know, 4%. It was around 3.5. But we also saw a number of African Americans and Latino workers participating at the labor force a lot higher than they are now. Yeah. They are still left behind, especially prime age African American workers. The unemployment rate for African American men is 7.8%. African American women, 6%. If that was the normal unemployment rate, we talk about an economic crisis right yeah. now. No, and, and, and we should note that the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies focuses on issues of importance to African Americans, people of color. Uh, and it is worth noting that the unemployment rate is essentially double for African Americans than it is for whites. It is. Um, and it, it is, um, and, and there's there's remains this pretty significant wage gap as well. Right. Income inequality is obviously much more pronounced than the... Uh, when you look at African Americans, um, so is it is it the case that there's continues to be a large number of people left behind in this recovery? Yeah, I mean, so when we talk about slack in the labor market, you know, that's looking at the people. When people talk about a tight labor market, we would feel that the wages would be growing. But you know, I contend there's a there's a high number of slack. One, because wages aren't growing as fast as they should. Two. When you look at this, if you get really wonky, there's a U6 number that captures yeah. uh, discouraged workers, marginally attached, part-time for economic reasons. These are folks who have part-time jobs but want full-time jobs. Those are still almost near relatively record rates in its relationship to U3, right? And so that means there's still – that elevated still – that number is still elevated. And that needs to come down. It needs yeah. to come down a lot quicker than it has. Well, and I think it speaks more broadly to some of the – broader policies that are necessary to raise wages, increasing the minimum wage. That's right. Um, House uh, Education and Labor Committee uh, this week uh, or marked up a bill to raise the minimum wage to $15. You've got um, New Jersey. You've got um, uh, Illinois that have now raised their minimum mm-hmm. wages to 15 There's the overtime rule that you and I worked at at the That's Department right. of Labor. Um, there are sensible policies that can raise wages in addition to job training and all kinds of other initiatives. Right. And I think we need to continue to push on some of these policies because the president keeps talking about this economic miracle. But let's ask the folks on the ground. Let's ask the folks on Main Street. I really think there's this huge and we were concerned about this during the Obama administration. We didn't want to tout the economy too much because there are still a lot of people hurting. And I think that's the case even today when the president keeps talking about, wow, this is the greatest job market ever, the greatest economy ever. There are folks still left behind. If you go to these like rural counties that he won by 90 percent, those unemployment rates are still staggering in double digits. Yeah, and yeah. and I remember that. Uh, yeah. I remember that statistic about um, the number of people. It's like sixty or eighty percent of Americans can't come up with four hundred dollars right. for an emergency expense, and right. so that I think shows the number of people who continue to live at the edge. Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually was heartening to see that the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve Chair is actually tracking these these figures, you know, because again, they set these monetary policies. So it might need to cool down on raising interest rates in terms of, you know, continuing to spur economic growth. Yeah. Um, What, um, and again, so we've talked about African-Americans, unemployment rates for Latinos is also high. Yep. Asians, not as high. So interesting you bring that up, you know, as you know, Chris, we did a study when we were at labor looking at the economic situation of Asian-Americans. You know, so when you look at the overall numbers, numbers look great. Low unemployment rates for Asian Americans, they're earning really well compared to uh, median wages. But when you dive into that, where are typically Asian Americans located? They're located in the coastal cities, yeah. high cost areas. So when you factor that in, those wage gains pretty much disappear. You know, and you actually start factoring that pieces in. 
the poverty rates of these Asian American groups we think that are doing well actually skyrocket relative right. to other groups, you know. And so I think that's why when we talk about the economy, we need to actually look at the nuance because some of these folks are hurting, especially places like Seattle, New York, San Francisco. Rents keep going up. It's hard for these communities to keep up. Yeah, it's one of the reasons the Obama administration, we, you know, look, I mean, we obviously want to tout our successes, but we never say the job is done because no matter what the broader economic indicators are, no matter mm-hmm. what the unemployment rate is across the country, if you're un- unemployed, the unemployment rate is 100%. That's right. Uh, and and we always kind of went back to walk down your main street, and if you see storefronts that are boarded up, if you see, mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking about the demise of retail around the country, yep. I mean, um, that's what people feel personally. They don't right. really care about the, the statistics that the government puts out every month. Yeah, and even the new jobs that are being created, these gig economy type jobs, you know, when you look at some of the work, and when we did, uh, BLS did a survey on jobs like Uber and TaskRabbit, a lot of these folks still want full-time jobs, and they right. were asked to do this. They want jobs with benefits. They want this stability. We're coming out with a survey later this month related to future work with, uh, with a racial diversity uh, component to it, and most folks still want the stability of this income, benefits, and I think... Uh, we really need to think about these things. And I think new policies and these presidential candidates need to start talking about different baseline ways to continue growing this economy while providing uh, stability for the middle class. You know, and it's one of the reasons why during the shutdown we talked a lot about, or not enough people talked about, I did, and I know you all did, about the impact of the shutdown on African-American workers, uh, federal employees, because Mm -hmm. on balance they earned less than white employees, um, particularly among the contract employees, those people who... We're never going to get back pay. That's right. Um, largely, uh, you know, janitorial security guards, mm-hmm. cafeteria workers, largely people of color, um, and and these were people also who had much lower savings That's right. than on balance white employees or white contract employees, and so they had a lot less margin of error. And so for many people, that those couple of weeks without a paycheck, yeah. um, they will be digging themselves out of a hole for the rest of this year. That's right. And I think that's the message we need to keep talking about here, especially in terms of the economy. There's a huge disconnect right now coming out of the White House to what is actually going on on Main Street, right? When it talks about the economic miracle, when it talks about the tax cuts, they're just benefiting folks who are on 1600 Park or, you know, 600 Park Avenue in New York. You know, when you talk about the shutdown, you're right. It overrepresents African American workers who are adversely affected, even in contract work. And you think about where a lot of the government work is, it's not in D.C., a lot of them are in rural areas, particularly in the black rural mm-hmm. South. And so who are the community? These communities are already hurting as it is. And to take out two paychecks from a community like that, yeah. that's devastating. That is devastating. So you, 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 you mentioned this briefly. Who Are there candidates on the Democratic side who are actually talking about these issues or have put forward interesting policy proposals? I think it's really interesting. And I have to give credit to our old boss, Secretary Perez, for you know, reformatting how the the primary season's going and the debates are going because we're ta- we're bringing some of these more these issues to the forefront. You know, moving up California, I think, significantly changes the conversation from policies that would affect folks in Iowa and New Hampshire. Right. You know, we always had South Carolina, Carolina, Nevada, but moving some of this up because we're ta- all these candidates are now talking about different ways of addressing the future of work in a sense because automation is coming. It's how adversely it will affect these communities, right? We didn't really address it too much in the 90s with trade, with devastated communities. We didn't have a proper yeah. response. We're trying to get ahead of it now. So I think, you know, Cory Booker has this interesting proposal, you know, uh, from the economist Derek Hamilton at Ohio, at Ohio State 
talking about baby bonds. That's a really strong way of uh, you know bridging the wealth gap, especially for young people of color. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposals on universal child care, as well as getting more workers involved on boards, I think that has a huge, tremendous effect. My mom has been a Walmart worker on the front lines for 20 mm. years. I was in Bentonville just two weeks ago at a Walmart conference talking about this, and they're they're changing their tune a little bit. She's seen it on the front lines, how hard it is. She For me to go to that conference, she had to request time off to fly wow. up here to take care of my kids, and they were giving her a hard time about this. And, you know, like if you had more people on workforce boards talking about the different things that they're facing, I think they would address this, right? One thing that she saw, um, the local Walmart she's had in Stone Mountain, Georgia, one day they came in, took out all the cash registers, put self-checkouts. Yeah. They brought them all back six months later. It was an economic disaster. Had the company talked to my mom and her coworkers about how to implement this, they would have done it in such a way that actually benefited the workers and benefited the company's bottom line. Okay, I have to. Uh, one person who I know, and I'm now looking at Peter, wasn't Andrew Yang on the show? He was indeed. Andrew, you mean, uh, pre- I'm sorry, you mean President Yang? <laughs> <laughs> Please, Andrew. I, I mean, look, I, I think, I think I've met Andrew. He's, I mean, the, the guy's got. He actually is talking about the impact of automation and mm-hmm. technology on jobs. He's a fascinating guy. Look, we, we had a whole conversation with yeah. him about this. Uh, is he going to be president? Probably not. Probably not. Um, does he have a a, a a wide platform that he's prepared to talk about? <laughs> not really. But on the things that he can talk about, he is absolutely 100% correct absolutely 100% right. and good and way out in front of where a lot of presidential candidates are, particularly about what you just mentioned, yeah. the automations. Yeah. So, so again, we'll shamelessly plug. Go back and yeah. w- listen to... The episode where he's have a conversation with Bill. Yeah, it was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. He also did Freakonomics podcast a couple weeks ago as well. He's fascinating. I think it's not only just the automation piece, but that just exacerbates what we've already been seeing in the economy, which is this fissuring of the workplace where people are getting less benefits, paying less time. There being more contractual work, you know, I think all that is coupled into this automation, this change right. in nature of work, you know. So we have to address this now. Yeah, uh, this is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill Press. Uh, we are here in studio with Harin Contractor, Director of Workforce Policy at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. You can follow him on Twitter at Harin Contractor. You can also follow me at Twitter on Twitter at ChrisLu44. And follow the show at BP Show. So I want to shift gears. The Joint Center has mm-hmm. been doing uh, some remarkable work on an issue near and dear to me, uh, on racial diversity among congressional staff. Um, uh, I spent 12 of my 20 years in government, um, House and Senate. Uh, when I was uh, uh, Senator Obama's legislative mm-hmm. director, I was the only Asian-American legislative director in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... Um, we actually had a our chief of staff, Pete Rouse, was half Japanese, and I think we were the only Asian American um, uh, chief of staff and deb uh, uh, and legislative director in the Senate. So um, you all are trying to change all that. We are, we are. Sorry, I kind of throw my headset. Um, you know, we the Joint Center came out with a report in 2015 looking at the U.S. Senate side. And it found some remarkable uh, and terrible numbers, right? There was only one black chief of staff at that point. It was on the Republican side. Yeah. You know, um, as Democrats keep talking about, we're the party of big tens. We're the party of everyone. We want to be inclusive. But these members are not reflecting that in terms of their top staff. And, Chris, you know more so than others 
that chiefs of staff, legislative directors, and communications directors have significant impacts on a congressional office, more so than potentially staff assistants or LAs or LCs, yep. right? Um, but when you look at some of these members, they put a lot of people of color, you know, at the staff level, these lower yeah. level jobs, but not these top staff jobs. Yeah. So you, we, need, you need to create a pipeline. We do need to create a pipeline, and but these these what we found most so is that a lot of these members that represented districts that are thirty percent or more people of color had zero top staff of color. If you're trying to represent the needs of your constituents, you're off the should try to reflect a little bit of what your your district should yeah. look like, right? Um, we often talk about this, and Chris, you talk about this a lot in your time in terms of representation. If you're not at the seat, you're on, you know, don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Right. Right. Uh, you know, we found that, you know, only 13.7% of these congressional members had top, top staff of color um, in November. You know, now things are changing, but I think a lot of that has to reflect with the diverse nature of people we put in office right now. They're leading the way, they're actually um, matching their top staff levels of the nation. And that's something to say, but there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, you know, I pulled, you all updated this study in September of 2018, and I do recommend people take a look at that. It's on uh, uh, online at jointcenter.org. People of color account for 38% of the U.S. population, but only 13.7% of all top house staff. Yeah. Of the 329 personal offices of white members, only 16, so less than 5%, are led by uh, chiefs of staff of color, six work for Democratic members, and 10 work for Republican That's members. Right. So yeah. there are more uh, people of color, chiefs of staff working for Republicans than Democrats. That's right. Yeah. And that was alarming. And when we posed these to, you know, House leadership, especially Democratic leadership, they, you know, unfortunately, they were giving us a song and dance. I said they're working on this. But, you know, honestly, I think a lot of the new freshman members are leading the way. They were really vocal about this. You know, credit Speaker Pelosi. She, she adopted some of our recommendations in terms of hiring a diverse office, you know, a diversity office, you know, pushing for a Rooney rule. So they're slowly trying to implement these things. But thankfully, like I said, the freshman members are leading the way. A lot of the explain what the Rooney rule is. Rooney rule is like you have to, uh, you know, if you have an opening in your office. You at least have to interview one person of color, right? Yeah. Uh, you're mandated to do that at least, so, you know, and, and that's something that the NFL started, you know, was yeah. uh, by Art Rooney, who was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, they had a lack of diversity in terms of head coaches in the NFL and they mandated this. And the NFL saw a significant change after they implemented that because they just assumed some of these folks didn't have the qualifications when they got them into the office. They're like, wow, not only are you smart enough, you know, but you could be running this team. Yeah. No, I would tell you that when <laughs> I uh, did the hiring for Senator Obama when he came in, the instructions I gave, I, I was given from up top was we're going to have 50% men, 50% women, 50% people of color. Uh, and, and I was held to that, uh, you know, and, and people, you know, and it was hard because, as you said, there is not a pipeline necessarily. Right. right. If you're looking for the conventional credentials and experience, if you're willing to expand what you're looking for, mm -hmm. you can always find interesting people and Look, I'll tell people who say that it doesn't matter that we had probably the most diverse office in the U.S. Senate, and I think the results are our guy became president of the United States. So I'll put that against anybody. Yeah, and we also saw that in the administration. We had a very diverse right. leadership group at the administration and, and staffers work. We set a pipeline. I think you know we're seeing all those people do great things now. One thing we do want to mention is that we saw a 150% increase in terms of black chiefs of staff on the Senate side and yeah. the Democratic side. They went to zero to five, and so that's great, right? So we need more of this. 
but there's still a lot of work to do. This was a hard conversation to have. We had to have hard conversations with our friends. We had to call out certain individuals that weren't doing this. So, you know, you know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, who lit 2018 on fire, his staff didn't have any top people of color. Right. You know, Ro Khanna, who's a progressive icon right now, doesn't have a top staff people of color. You know, these are hard conversations. I think people get surprised and look at the names. They're like, wow, we thought these pers- these people are out in front of these issues, but they're actually not reflected on their staff side. Yeah, and, and we need to figure out, when we think about the pipeline, that pipeline needs to start very early. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I've been pushing uh, is paid internships on right. Capitol Hill. I mean, this is one of the, you know, again, if you talk about where people first come in the door, um, the idea that somebody could come as a college student, spend their summer or a semester in D.C. and work for free, and somehow their parents are going to pay for them to do that, uh, I, again, if that's your assumption, that that is going to narrow the diversity of the pool. Again, it's not just, you know, white versus black. It's you know, wealthy versus not wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I look, my first internship on Capitol Hill was paid. Uh, right. And I came from a solidly middle class background. And had it not been paid, I could not have taken that internship. And right. that internship really uh, set me on a path to public service. No, I agree. And um, that's how I got my start in public service. 2002, I did an internship program that focused on uh, Indian American students that put me on Capitol Hill. And since then, I've actually taken the reins of that program, and we, we restarted, and we do this program for the last 10 years called the Washington Leadership Program. Right. We take 10, 10 South Asian American college students every year and put them on the Hill in government agencies. You know, and it's been wildly successful. It has built a pipeline. I think you're right. It starts with that pipeline in terms of internships. But part of it, Chris, and you understand some of this, the Asian American community is not as like nuanced in terms of what they need to ask for politically. Yeah. So instead of taking pictures with congressional candidates or members of Congress, they need to demand that their folks get a seat at the table as well. Yeah, and I, I also want to, and then, and I think we can't overlook the the impact of money. And I give mm-hmm. AOC a lot of credit. She has mm-hmm. decided that she's going to pay her congressional staff a living wage. And so I think the lowest paid staffer in AOC's office is fifty two thousand. Again, that might seem like a lot of money elsewhere yeah. in uh, the country, in, in DC, that's not a lot. And in part, she she had too many mm-hmm. people on her staff who are working second and third, or people she had heard of on congressional staffs working second or third jobs, and she just didn't want that anymore. The problem she has is every member of Congress, every senator gets a set amount of money. Right. So if you pay your lowest paid person 52000 I think our highest paid person is going to be 85000 which is right. about half of what the maximum is, because it's the same pool of money. So yeah. we need to pay more to our congressional staff also. We do. We can actually, if we did that, we'd probably see more retention, less right. turnover, and we yeah. actually have better informed members of Congress, yeah. right? You can actually recruit more talent. So let's take, for example, the hearings on, on tech they've done, You know, the Mark Zuckerberg hearing. That was kind of a disaster. These members of Congress yeah. did not know what they were talking about. Part of it is they don't have the staff that understands it either. How are you going to recruit someone who knows yep. tech really well out of the Bay Area or from Atlanta or New York to come work at a congressional office for fifty thousand, like $25,000, right? right? right. Um, so that's the thing. I think if we were able to change this, not only will we have better informed members, yeah. we have less turnover, we, have, we probably have a better governing process. Yeah. Uh, we've been having this great conversation with Harine Contractor. Harine is the Director of Workforce Policy at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. You can follow Harine at Harine Contractor. We've got about a minute left, Harine. Mm-hmm. We've been asking our, our panelists <laughs> something 
that from I okay, you're a young guy, so I can't <laughs> imagine like what doesn't exist when you are a kid that 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 uh, or what exists. Although let me ask you my one thing. Sure. Um, when I say I've got a very large Rolodex, do you even know what I'm talking about? Uh, I do because when I started as an intern in 2002, some of these old school folks I used to work old, with had this old giant, school folks. Yeah, Rolodex. I'm like old people. <laughs> Old school. I, just, I was being kind, and that was part of my job that summer was to take that Rolodex and manually input into an access. Database. Yes, we're gonna digitize <laughs> my. Kill the Rolodex. No, I want my Rolodex where I flip it with my cards and my business cards. So no, that's actually. Um, yeah, I was thinking about Rolodexes. I was thinking about uh, date books and things yeah. like that. That yeah, you know, calendars, right. the things yeah. that we all have that. Your generation doesn't even understand I, that. I miss my Atari. Yeah, I tell we, you what. Well, like, I think we all miss our Atari. Yeah, actually, you know, that was, that was how I learned uh, to type and everything, you know, <laughs> the manual process. The, the thing was the size of this desk, you know, so I definitely miss that. Well, look, uh, thank you for being here, Harine. Uh, this is Chris Liu guest hosting uh, for Bill Press. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Please follow the show at BP Show, and you can watch the replay of this on YouTube. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Peter and Ray, our wonderful producers who always keep me on track. Uh, this is my seventh time guest hosting, and hopefully um, say nice things about me so I get to come back for time number eight. Uh, thank you all, and have a great Thursday.